This morning, I'm going to go into my sermon for today, and it is titled, Answering the Call from Ruins to Renewal. And we'll be going through Nehemiah chapters 1 to 3. And actually, the last sermon I preached in uh, Ghana was from Nehemiah chapter 1. It was a totally different sermon uh, talking about what breaks your heart. That is what I preached on. But the events leading up to Nehemiah chapters 1 to 3 are rooted in the tumultuous history of the Israelites, particularly the kingdom of Judah. And for some 70 years, Jerusalem was something of a ghost town with the potential to end up like many ancient cities, completely forgotten except to history. But God. I say, but God. And if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that the book of Ezra concludes with a strong focus on religious and social reforms, emphasizing the importance of maintaining the distinct identity of the Israelites. So the closing of Ezra sets the stage for Nehemiah with the temple rebuilt and religious reforms underway. And there's a clear foundation of spiritual renewal that's taking place. However, the physical vulnerability of Jerusalem with its broken walls and burned gates remains a pressing concern. And this is the immediate setting as the book of Nehemiah opens, where news of the city's physical vulnerability deeply distresses Nehemiah, leading him to embark on the mission of rebuilding the city's walls and marking a significant step in the broader process of restoration and renewal of the Jewish community post-exile. And this morning, we'll read through all the verses. I've asked Pastor Mary and Pete and my wife to help me with this. And so Pastor Mary will be joining us as we read Nehemiah chapter 1. All right. Chapter 1 says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Shizlev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who perseveres the who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there. And will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. 
They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad, when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, What should you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem, and there were three days. And I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out by night by, val by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up by night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Chapter 3. Then Eliashab the high priest arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate, 
They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zechor, the son of Emery, built. Now the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, and son of, the son of Hakkas, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshesabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baana, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Joiada, the son of Pesdeah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Meronothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, also made repairs for the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumath, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaneah, made repairs. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of Furnaces. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Haloshesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars, and a thousand cubits of the wall to the refuse gate. Malchijah, the son of Recheb, official of the district of Beth Hacherem, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Shalom, the son of Colhose, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars, and the wall of the pool of Shelah at the king's garden as far as the steps that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, official of half the district of Bethzer, made repairs as far as a point opposite the tombs of David and as far as the artificial pool and the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites carried out repairs on the Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, the official of half the district of Kela, carried out repairs for his district. After him, their brothers carried out repairs on the Bavai, the son of Henadad, official of the other half of the district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the official of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent of the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakkas, repaired another section from the doorway of Eliashib's house, even as far as the end of his house. After him, the priests, the men of the valley, carried out repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashub carried out repairs in front of their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseth, son of Ananiah, carried out repairs beside his house. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah as far as the angle and as far as the corner. 
Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs in front of the angle and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king, which is by the court of the guard. After him, Pedaiah, the son of Parush, made repairs. The temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting wall and as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs, each in front of his house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, carried out repairs in front of his house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, carried out repairs in front of his own quarters. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, carried out repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants in front of the inspection gate, and as far as the upper room of the corner. Between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants carried out repairs. Can we give them a round of applause? Thank you guys so much. I'll just say before I get into it here, we'll be doing three chapters as well next week. We've been going fast through Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, I know we've mentioned this before, but I encourage you to take time throughout the week to read through these verses. And we read it today because I wanted to set the foundation for where we're going. And so, Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Would you instruct us by it today? You know, whether you're a corporate executive, a school teacher, an office manager, a consultant, a system analyst, or a slay-at-home parent, there is much we can all learn from Nehemiah. And you don't have to raise your hand on this. And yes, I did say slay at home parent. I know people say stay at home, but I said slay at home because you guys are doing a lot. All right. Whether you're male or female. And so you don't have to raise your hand on this, but anybody here work with a touchy boss. So did Nehemiah. Anybody here under any stress have to handle criticism? So did Nehemiah. Anybody here ever get discouraged over what seems to be an impossible problem to solve or an impossible work to complete? So did Nehemiah. Does anyone here have any walls broken down in their life? Maybe the walls of your marriage are broken down. Maybe the walls of your family are broken down. Well, Nehemiah is the expert in rebuilding broken down walls. But you know what? Rebuilding can be more difficult than building from the beginning. After all, more and more people are saying today it is easier to walk away from a broken marriage than it is to stay and try to rebuild it. And in the very first chapter, Nehemiah lays the foundation of how to begin to rebuild broken down walls. He begins the process of not only how to face problems and fight obstacles, but find solutions. And so I want to share with you some things that stood out to me in chapter 1 if we're going to rebuild broken walls. And the ob first observation is this. See the reality of the situation. Immediately in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, we see the problem. The city walls have been broken down and the gates are in disrepair. We don't use walls today to protect our cities and our homes. We use fences, gates, alarm systems, and radar. 
Our entire country, in fact, has an invisible wall around it in the form of an organization known as NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command. And they use ground-based radar, airborne radar, satellites, and computers. And every square inch of both Earth and space is monitored for incoming attacks. Now, can you imagine what would happen to this country if those communications were destroyed and computers malfunctioned? And see, in effect, that is what had happened in Jerusalem. The walls were, only, were the only real means of protecting a city. Where there were no walls, there was no protection because whenever an army would finally take a city, the first thing they would do would be to destroy the walls. And let me share with you how important walls can be. Think about it this way. The walls of fidelity protect marriages. Walls of marriage protect the family. Walls of the family protect the community. Walls of the community protect the state. Walls of the state protect the nation. Walls are important. And before you can ever solve a problem, you've got to understand it. You've got to honestly look and see the reality of the situation. You know, in in my class, I read from an author named Jim Collins. And one of the things he says is that one of the marks of a good company going to a great company is their willingness to confront the brutal facts. And we must do that in our church on a daily basis as we have the challenge of rebuilding walls. I checked it this week, and within 20-minute radius of this church, there are approximately 614,127 people who see no importance of what we do whatsoever. They have no affiliation with any church whatsoever, and these are walls that need to be rebuilt. Within 20 minutes of this church, home after home after home, there are marital walls falling down, financial walls falling down, and spiritual walls falling down. As you confront the brutal facts in your own life, maybe the news is not good for you. And I'm sorry if you find yourself on such a path. But as I just noted, one of the first lessons we learn from Nehemiah is you can't solve a problem that you run away from. You can't get the right answers until you ask the right questions. And that is what Nehemiah did with his brother. Did you caught that? It was his brother that he was speaking with because he wanted to see the reality of the situation. Observation two is this. Share the responsibility of the situation. Here's what Nehemiah says in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6b to 7. He says, I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Did you notice how Nehemiah used the pronoun we rather than they? Church, we will never solve a problem if all we do is try to find the blame and fix it on to somebody else. Nehemiah could have easily said, this is their problem. Let them deal with it. I don't have anything to do with it. I've never even seen Jerusalem. I don't even know those people. Have you ever shared the blame for something you really weren't involved in? Have you ever taken the heat over something that you had nothing to do with directly? 
If you are going to rebuild walls, you have to be willing to sit where other people sit and walk where other people walk and feel what other people are feeling. You can look at society in one of two ways. You can stand on the sideline and say, you know what, things ought to really be different. Or you can get into the game and say, how can I help make a difference? How can I help make a difference? We need to share the responsibility for the situation. And I'll just be bold and say that there are some of us in here today who have a problem that can be solved but will not be solved until we admit we are part of the problem, be willing to take responsibility for it. Amen? You guys okay? You guys okay out there? I have a few zingers this morning, but we'll keep it moving here. Church, blame is not a strategy for changing anything. Blame is how we avoid changing things. Observation three, seek the ruler over the situation. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When Nehemiah heard about the condition of Jerusalem, the first thing he did was pray. There was nothing at that point that he could do but pray. Because at that time, as you're going to see, he was in the wrong place with the wrong job working for the wrong person. And let me just say this. If you don't learn anything else from the book of Nehemiah, please learn this. Whenever you face walls that are falling down, whether it is in your life or the life of your family or in your job or with your friends, the first place to go is to God and pray. In other words, once you see the reality of the situation, and once you are willing to share the responsibility for the situation, the first thing you had better do is admit that you can't do anything apart from God. I mean, think about it. The things you are praying for today, life spring, are the things you are depending on God to do. So every broken down wall that you ever come to in your life should cause us to focus on him. Amen? Observation four is this. Stand as a resource in a situation. There is a surprising twist to the story. Nehemiah waits until the closing line of chapter one to tell us that he was the king's cupbearer. I believe it was through Nehemiah's praying and asking God for the solution to the problem that God reminded Nehemiah of who he was and what he did. You see, God had already given Nehemiah the answer. And guess what? The answer was Nehemiah, a man of unbelievable influence and power. Nehemiah was the most trusted advisor to the king, the second most powerful man in the kingdom. He didn't know a thing about rebuilding walls. He was not a contractor, nor was he a builder. But he was the right man in the right place at the right time for the right job. And church, when God wants to accomplish a work, he always prepares his workers and puts them in the right place at the right time. That is why Nehemiah said in his prayer, Make your servant successful today. Nehemiah didn't pray, God, send the miracle. He said, God, send me. He didn't pray for a miracle. He prayed for an opportunity. Church, sometime your answer to prayer requires your willingness to be a part of the answer. It might require you making yourself available to be a part of the answer. If you are a parent, it's not enough to just pray for your children that they will become men and women of character. You've got to be a part of that process. If you have have a burden for unbelieving friends it's not enough to pray that your friends will be saved you need to pray for an opportunity to speak to them about your faith in christ but also speak to them you got to play your part in that amen 
Nehemiah didn't pray for God to rebuild the wall. He prayed for an opportunity to rebuild it himself. I also want to give you a warning. Rebuilding walls always come at a cost. Always come at a cost. Nehemiah was going to have to give up that corner office, that corporate card, the comfortable life of the king's court, the company chariot, and go to a city he had never seen, to a people he did not know, and take a two-month trip across the desert filled with danger and lay his life on the line. That's what he had to do. But it was because Nehemiah was willing to pay the price that in 52 days the walls were rebuilt, the gates were restored, and the people we're rejoicing, but it took some sacrifice. Where in your life might the Lord be calling you to make some sacrifices to accomplish that which he's calling you to? Hmm? I believe there are times in every person's life where we have what I call a Nehemiah moment or Nehemiah moments. And it is that moment when you come to a fork in the road. One fork leads to comfort. The other one leads to sacrifice. It is that moment when you have to decide whether you're going to serve yourself or you're going to serve God. you got to decide, church, whether you're going to lay up treasures on earth or treasures in heaven. you got to make up your mind whether you care more about your comfort or more about his kingdom you see the greatest ability that nehemiah had was his availability are you available for the lord today there are no problems that people can't solve but there are people who are unwilling to solve them are you available to be used by him so i'm asking you to roll up your sleeves and help us rebuild these walls around us amen chapter two Nehemiah chapter 2 demonstrates for us in the events that take place in chapter 2 four steps that we should all consider. And if you are facing walls that needs to be rebuilt, whether it is the wall of your marriage, the wall of your business, or the wall of your own reputation, reputation, these are four steps. You can start with step one, step back, and wait. This is an interest, there's an interesting detail given in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, and it came about in the month of Nisan in the 20th year. Now, what is so important about the month of Nisan? If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, the story begins with, now it happened in the month of Chislev, the 20th year. Now, Chislev was November, Nisan was March. And so simply put, Nehemiah had been praying to the Lord for four months about his problem. You and I think we've done a great deal when we pray for a few minutes. Yet, for four months, day and night, without talking to anyone else, Nehemiah had been praying about this problem to the Lord. He had not mentioned this problem to anyone else. He had not talked about it with anyone else. He had kept it as a matter between him and God. And that is a very difficult lesson for us to learn because praying and waiting goes hand in hand. And I want you to remember that waiting when it comes to God, waiting is never wasting time. Many times the first thing you need to do when you face a problem is simply talk to the Lord and wait. Talk to the Lord and wait. I know it is tough to wait in our microwave culture. We live in an instant gratification world. But one of the things I've learned about God is that he puts a premium on patience. He puts a premium on patience. When you wait on the Lord as you are praying to him about a problem, you aren't wasting time. You are investing time, church. You're investing time with him. I've also found, at least well in my life with God, that 
the what often precedes the how. And what I mean by that is that Nehemiah knew what God had called him to do. And that was to rebuild the walls, but he had no clue how God would do it. And when God would do it, he just had to pray and wait. And I'd say that this should be an encouragement to us in Life Springs God birthed desire for us to own our own building. Let's keep praying as we wait. So the first step is yes. Step two is step up and ask. Nehemiah two, one to two. One of the reasons I love Nehemiah is that he's so transparent. In chapter 1, we see a Nehemiah of faith. And now we see a Nehemiah who is somewhat afraid, probably very, very afraid. He had carried this burden for four months, and for four months, he had not complained. He had stayed faithful in his duties. He didn't pout. He didn't whine. He just went about his business, but the burden of God's call on his life had gotten heavier and heavier. My grandfather used to say, what is done in the well will come up in the bucket. As a kid, I used to draw water out of a well, and sometimes you pull it up, there's a snake in there. Sometimes you pull it up, and there's a frog in there. I mean, you strain the water, and you still drink it. I'm fine. I'm here today. All right. But it applies to life. And the reason why Nehemiah was afraid was that no one was ever to show sadness in the presence of the king. You were always to be upbeat and happy because your job was to make the king happy. And if you ever made the king unhappy, he could put you to death immediately. And you don't have to raise your hand on this, but have you ever had somebody bite your head off when they didn't think or when they didn't like something you said? The king could do that to Nehemiah, like literally. The king asked Nehemiah, why was he sad? And now the moment of truth has arrived. Very delicately he shares his burden with the king. He said, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Nehemiah 2.3. So far, so good. Nehemiah has shared his burden, but then he gets a shock of his life because in verse 4, chapter 2, the king said to me, he said, what would you request? The king just did the unthinkable. He gives a cupbearer a blank check, so, so to speak. Now, what did Nehemiah do? The rest of verse 4 says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah shoots up an instant prayer asking God to give him the words to say. And this is a good thing for us to learn. The next time the pressure is on, the heat is up, you're about to present the most crucial proposal of your career. You're about to handle the most difficult customer in your business or you're about to address a very sensitive problem. Before you do it, pray, pray, pray. Nehemiah had done something else besides prayer. He had also planned one of the greatest mistakes people make when they face problems is this. They don't plan as if they expect God to give them an opportunity. Nehemiah had prayed, but he had also planned. We're praying for a building, but there's a whole lot of planning that's going on behind the scenes. We've got the building fund. We've talking to realtors, reaching out to other churches to see if they want to sell, meeting with other pastors, membership meetings, financial meetings, and I can go on and on and on. We're praying, but we're also planning. Pray, church, but also plan. Step three is this, step in and look. In verse 12 and 13, we're told that Nehemiah went about inspecting the walls. The Hebrew word there means to closely examine. 
Nehemiah didn't go about his task blindly. He was fact-finding, fixing his focus, and doing his homework. The circumference of the city was between one and a half to two and a half miles, and the destruction was great, and the project was going to be absolutely massive. And Nehemiah wanted to ensure he had every fact. Step four is this, step out and act. Nehemiah 2.17. He says, then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be reproach. Once again, notice the personal the pronouns of we and us. He was letting these people know up front who barely knew him that they were all in this together. Nehemiah appealed to them saying in effect that these walls need to be rebuilt not because they were broken down but because broken down walls are a reproach to God's people and to God himself. And of course there was opposition in the names of Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem. I've already mentioned that one of the things we ought to continuously pray for is opportunity but i want you to understand this when you pray for opportunity you are going to get opposition the apostle paul made it made an interesting statement in first corinthians 69 he said a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me Church, there is no opportunity without opposition. People who walk by sight will always be hostile to people who walk by faith. When you stand up in faith, others will stand up and fight. Are you prepared for this? Life spring, not everyone is going to journey with us. There are some who will oppose. There are some whom the Lord will call to other tasks. There are some who will complain. There are others who will ridicule, criticize, and even be cynical. But what I want you to know is this. The way to deal with all of this is to shift your focus to a father who gives us his permission to do his work, his protection while we do his work, and his provision to complete his work. He supply all of our needs. According to his riches. Amen. Chapter 3. I'm not sure who coined the phrase. But John Maxwell has a book that's titled Teamwork Makes the Dream Work. And I'm sure you've heard this so many times. And there's definitely teamwork to the dream work in Nehemiah chapter 3. When you read through chapter 3, you'll see that it's leaders, managers, and workers doing what they can do in order to be successful. So here are a few more observations from chapter 3. Successful dream work requires leaders who delegate. When we last left these people in verse 18 of chapter 2, it says that, Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. In chapter 3, 1 adds, Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Without question, Nehemiah was the leader of this project. And you must have leadership if there is ever going to be success in any endeavor. Somebody or some bodies must be in charge. Nehemiah was definitely in charge. You can see his invisible handprint all over this project. For example, 
13 times in this chapter, in chapter 3, the word section is used. We're told time after time how each group of people were working on a section of the wall. Nehemiah had organized this project so the wall would be rebuilt section by section. Furthermore, Nehemiah had engaged by name over 70 people to do the work on the wall. Amazingly, you won't find Nehemiah's name in this chapter. Yes, there's a Nehemiah mentioned, but it is not Nehemiah who is overseeing this project. He had totally stepped out of the picture. And you, if you see, Nehemiah said, if Nehemiah had said, I meant, I'm going to do this by myself. I'll mix the cement. I'll make the bricks. I'll repair the gates. The work would have never gotten done in time. It's not a one-man show. What did Nehemiah do? He delegated the work. Delegation was not invented by some Harvard MBA or Fortune 500 company or 21st century management guru. Delegation was thought of by God himself in the beginning. Think about it. When he created Adam and Eve, he delegated care for the garden to them. If rebuilding the walls had been tackled all at once by one person, or if the entire group had worked only in one place at the wall, the work would have never been done. Nehemiah took a two and a half mile wall and divided it into 41 separate segments. Nehemiah could not be in 41 places at the same time. And so what did he do? Well, you, when you read in verses 9 to 19 of chapter 3, you'll see that Nehemiah had found other people who had the ability to manage others. They had the ability to lead. There were tiers of leadership working on these walls. There were managers in administrative positions to whom Nehemiah had given two things, responsibility and ability. The second thing here I see is successful dream work requires workers who facilitate. The real heroes of chapter 3 are those who made the motor, drove the nails, fastened the bolts, and laid the bricks. In this chapter, you will find the phrase, next to him or after him. And these phrases are mentioned about 22 times. People were working next to each other, hand in hand, arm in arm, illustrating the dream work of teamwork. Everybody was carrying their share of the load, doing the part that they could do to help rebuild these walls. Everyone found their place on the wall. And so my question to you this morning is, where is your place on the wall when it comes to ministry, when it comes to God's calling on your life, when it comes to your place here at LifeSpring? Being a part of the church and being a part of the ministry is where you take your place on the wall. That means everybody, singles, married, young, if you're older, it means men, it means women, those who can manage the work, those who are willing to work while they are being managed. If this work is going to be done, it's not going to take some of us or most of us. It's going to take all of us, all of us. Now, I do have to point out to you the saddest verse in the entire chapter, Nehemiah 3.5 says, Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. There will always be some who didn't work. There will always be some opposition. And as I'm coming to an end here, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. Here at LifeSpring, we have a council. We have paid and volunteer staff as well. 
We also have the leadership team. But it's going to take more than them to accomplish this work. I'm going to ask all of you to stand. And the reason I'm asking all of you to stand is because I want you to see that it's going to take everyone, each and every one of us, if we're going to accomplish this work. Dan and I, as the senior pastors of this church, can't rebuild these walls by ourselves. We can't even rebuild these walls with just the council, the staff, or the leadership team. We need managers who will administrate and workers who will facilitate. We're going to need everybody taking their part on the wall by giving of your time, your talent, and your treasure. Early on in the message, I told you that within a 20-minute radius of this church, there are approximately 614,127 people who see no importance of whatsoever we're doing here. They have no affiliation with any church whatsoever. And these are walls that need to be rebuilt. Within 20 minutes of this church, home after home after home, there are marital walls falling down, financial walls falling down, and spiritual walls falling down. And so I want to encourage you, as we face the broken walls in our lives and in our communities, may we be ever grounded in prayer. May we be leading with faith, deeply rooted in God's promises and cherish the unity we share in Christ. The walls we face today might look different from the ancient stones of Jerusalem, but with God at our helm, we can rebuild, restore, and renew in ways that resonates with His glory. What is your place on the wall? What does it look like for you to support this vision? Amen? The Lord is calling each and every one of us to it. Thank you.